So what we're going to do is there's some questions that were already written down, sent in by people. And uh, once we exhaust those, there was a second list that I'm going to ask. But yeah, when I ask the question, y'all three can expand one with another on each question. If you guys could speak to this idea of levels of holiness, why do you think that that's talked about among those that have what you would think would be a wrong view of sanctification by saying that there's levels of righteousness and holiness, don't we express that you either holy or not holy? It's, it's pretty much just a stark, you either are or you aren't, rather than levels. And what are the implications of levels? How would it affect the gospel itself or just, you know, good doctrine and theology? You go first. You go first. Yeah. No, I think, to answer the first part of that question, why does it appear to have, so many people appear to have this idea of a progression of righteousness, a progression of being set apart, is because I think historically we come from a position that is left over a little bit from the Reformation and that it was completely Roman with the idea of works, 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 works. And we have good gospel coming from the Reformation, but we have very poor ecclesiology. We have other areas that were never dealt with. And so, just like repentance, uh, you know, it's it's an idea of penance rather than a change of mind wrought by the Holy Spirit. And so, those things are the natural flavor of man. So, historically, the evangelical cults, the Church of Rome, and all the other religiosity centers historically in the Christian faith, have always, just like Judaism, they have always looked for an opportunity where man can do something that establishes some level or some semblance of control for his righteousness, for his working. And there's nothing greater than standing in the mirror of our soul and saying, you know, I'm doing good, I'm doing well. The implications to me is that it, it, it usurps the authority of Christ and the work that he came to accomplish. Because if we are not set apart for God, or we can be, I mean, how am I totally, how am I a little bit set apart? I mean, does God have my ear? Does he have my face? Does he have my shoulder? Um, you know, am I, have I just got a pinky toe out? Uh, what what does that look like? It's, a, it's an absurdity, just in the grammatical instruction of the New Testament, that teaches that the good news of the redemption of God is complete and finished work. And the conflation that takes place there is, like what you mentioned, we have a really big disconnect with the instructions given to the sanctified versus those who are trying to work out sanctification in a progressive way. So that's, you know, if, if, if Christ accomplished it, then why are we holding to this? And it really boils down to this. It's not about even being set apart. That people think holiness and they think righteousness. And so what it really has, has come to is that people who come to an idea of progressive sanctification are really teaching a progressive righteousness that is completely, completely erroneous and fallacious in the context of the gospel. We'll follow up. Let me repeat that so that yeah. it can be heard on tape. Um, she asked, what was the difference between progressive sanctification and growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Some say that's synonymous. Well, it's, it's an issue of definition. I think we've already stated once before that 
uh, you've got to know definitionally what people are truly intending by their words. I can give you an unrelated example off the top of my head that swirls around in our same circles, and that's the idea of common grace. There are people that use that terminology who simply refer to sunshine, rain, the uh, you know traffic jams or, or good driving conditions as common grace. Now, others refer to common grace as an, a true love of God for the reprobate wicked that doesn't result in salvation, that flows apart from Christ. And so you've got to know what people mean by the terminology they use. It, it is possible that saying progressive sanctification and growing in grace, using those terms interchangeably to some Christians may be due to a, a sloppiness on their part. Uh, it may be due to uh, just the, the definition that they're pouring into the term. But typically, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's probably better for us just to, to, to explain or at least differentiate those terms for everyone's sake. The Scripture calls us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. But the Scripture never even hints at the possibility that you can somehow become more of a child of God, more redeemed, more righteous, more right in the presence of God than the moment Christ reveals himself to you in saving mercy. Christ saved you. You are a child of God. And I liken it unto uh, receiving the keys to a, a grand house. If someone gave you the keys to a grand house with 10,000 rooms, you have the deed in one hand, the key in the other. You are the owner of this home. The home is yours. You, you are the master of that house. And yet you might have to travel room to room to see all that there is to see and to enjoy all that there is to enjoy in that house. Uh, but you're not becoming more the owner of that home. You're not becoming the, 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 the supermaster of that house. You're, you're the owner. You already were the owner. And the Lord calls us to grow in this new understanding, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. And uh, I don't think that those terms should be mingled sloppily because the implication for anyone who wants to think this issue through is to say you can have a Christian who isn't as holy as another. A Christian that isn't as righteous as another, yet both are redeemed by the blood. Um, if I could speak just momentarily on the, the the first part of the question that we asked initially, the idea of growing in holiness or, or, or stages of spirituality, of progressing forward and forward and forward. Uh, we see the, the seeds in works religion, even pre-Christian religion, the idea that surely there are ways that you can progress up the ladder in whatever religious system. I think some of it's due to the religiosity of man. We have a tendency to want to build things up to the heavens. Uh, it, it started when we took the forbidden fruit, when we said we know better than God. We see it typified in the Tower of Babel, where we're going to just go ahead and literally build a house to God. And if you can fast forward through the eons, Catholicism codified this silly notion that men could attain greater depths of holiness or greater heights of holiness. The Reformation, I believe there's evidence to say that the Reformation started by saying, for instance, that assurance was of the essence of saving faith. You read the earliest of the Reformers and you see that very plainly, very boldly stated. But as the Reformation doctrine 
also became the political norm of various states, you see a curbing of that kind of teaching and you see more of the, well, you've got to grow in this and you're going to mortify these deeds to the point that you'll eventually be a, of a higher caliber or a higher caste of Christian, you know, if I could borrow from the, the East. And then fast forward just a little bit further to the revivalism and the Finneyism and the Methodism and the Wesleyanism, a lot of isms there. But you see American Christianity has, or American displays of religiosity, have really gone a long way in making people think, but wait, there's more. And you see that in the revivalism, uh, especially in uh, the, the Wesleyan revivals, where they actually still to this day preach that you can attain a level of spiritual perfection here on earth and live above sin. And they call this doctrine entire sanctification, which, by the way, bled over to the broader evangelical community during the whole higher life movement that you can read about openly online. And we see a lot of the higher life ideas that Jesus is your Savior, but he needs you need to let go and let God and let him let him notice the terminology it's very important he has you, he has to become the lord he has to you have to let go let god maybe you've heard some of this and then we see in the the, the latest iteration of what we're what we're talking about today the uh, the lordship controversy we see in an effort to perhaps correct some of the overreaches of the free grace theology which is different than free and sovereign grace. These are folks who uh, teach that uh, belief in a vacuum equals salvation. Okay, And you have to study on some of this. We can't get into all the details. Men like MacArthur came out and and, and, and just went completely in, in a different direction and said, no, wait a minute, that's all completely messed up. And Zane Hodges and some of those guys were writing some of that stuff. And then MacArthur comes out and basically says... You know, unless you have these characteristics in your life, you have no claim to salvation. And then folks like us, who we, none of none of us would espouse Zane Hodges or John MacArthur in this area, we don't fit in either of those camps. So they really don't know what to do with us. Uh, we're kind of strange birds in their world. They don't know what to do with us. But that's sort of the the hit and miss shotgun historical survey of why it is that men think this. Uh, American Christianity, for the most part, and we've only been here a few hundred years, so it's it's been pretty much the entire part, has always been a story of addition, of trying to add something to the gospel, whether it be Wesley and his entire sanctification heresy, or Finney and his anxious bench and all of his other man-centered measures. Innovation abounds in the American perversion of, of the gospel. Uh, and it is tragic, but yeah, I think that gives you a little bit of a, at least a, a quick drive-by, as it were, of the high points that have led to this this kind of more, more, more uh, attain higher levels of holiness. It's not just us. It's happened in generations past for thousands of years. Uh, there are many, a million ways to maybe try to understand that as far as I'm concerned. I tend to answer all gospel things by going back to the fundamentals. We have to go back to the building blocks of salvation. Christ Jesus, who he is, the nature of the covenant. The covenant that we are saved in is called the covenant of grace by reason. It's a covenant of grace because by its very nature, 
all the terms were met by someone who is not ourselves, someone standing on behalf of us. So whatever God demands, which we know is perfection, God demands holiness, he demands righteousness, he demands perfection. God will never exchange life and righteousness based on some imperfect obedience. That's right. It's not going to happen. So when people try to come and say, well, we are measuring your performance, your sanctified life, which is not really defined, uh, what they're trying to do is they're trying to take you back into the garden. The Garden of Eden uh, is just a place where we find it very hard to repent from. We are not that far removed from Adam. <laughs> So the tendency of all men, especially unregenerate men who are in the pulpit, is to take you back to the fig leaf garment factory so that you can stitch your own garments. So they will come and say, grace, 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 but before you know it, if you're not paying attention, they will take you back to works. When they come and say, well, you have to progress, how are they measuring you and how are they measuring themselves? Apostle Paul said in the Corinthian letters, that we are not like those who measure themselves by themselves. And that was bad. That was negative. And he finishes that line and says, they show that they have no understanding. So anyone who claims to be progressively sanctified has no understanding. I, that's not my words. That's the Holy Spirit. They have no clue of what they are talking about. The one who knew what they were talking about was Apostle Paul. And he said, Christ has become all those things to us because God will always see us in Christ. God never sees you for you. He always sees you in your representative. So for me, to, for someone who has ears to hear, we go back to the fundamentals of the gospel. When you look at the teaching of the gospel, there are only two important people in the history of creation. That's Adam and Christ. So at the end of the day, what matters is in which Adam are you in? If you are in the first Adam and you remain in that first Adam, you are tossed. End of story. You can't improve yourself out of the first Adam. The second Adam is Christ, the accepted one. We have been accepted in the beloved. There's nothing lacking in the second Adam. So for someone to then come and say, well, there are levels of progressions that you have to go through, like you go, you're walking up some 60-story building. That's not going to work. It's postage. <coughs> okay. But it, it works very well for the religious men and women. Why? Because they want to put confidence in something other than the cross. They are trying to avoid the cross. That's the purpose. That's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. Sorry, in Galatians chapter 6, that they are trying to remove the offense of the cross. So they come and say, well, be like us. They want more miserable people to run with them on the treadmill. And I think it's good to, to just as a part and shot of that follow up question. It's important to remember that growing in grace is to continue to put our mind into the scripture to be reminded of what he just said. So that we are fully and forever and completely set apart in Christ, who is the Holy Holy One, the Holy Holy One. And 
There's nothing more that we can gain except more adoration for the work of God. Right, right. And I think it's an ill use. What about the, and and this would be a knee-jerk reaction, I think, for someone who perhaps considers themselves reformed and an adherent of progressive sanctification. What about the the bifurcation that they pretty much are forced into when they say, of course we're positionally sanctified, we're positionally sanctified in Christ, and they would say they would amen everything we just said so long as what we were saying is positionally we are holy and perfect and sanctified. But they would contend at this point for a secondary uh, understanding of, of sanctification as being an already not yet kind of proposition where your progressive sanctification is the work of God in your day-to-day life to mold you and make you into the holy person that God already sees you as being in Christ positionally. Uh, so what would what would we say to that kind of, of argumentation? Because it is it is uh, all over the place in Reformed circles. That's the that would be the go-to defense against everything we've said thus far. So, um, I mean, I could I could give it my answer, but I'd rather you guys chime in. What do we say to those who argue that there is a progressive sanctification that is different altogether than our positional sanctification? We'll prove it in the text. I mean, if you can't prove it contextual, I'm not talking about sound bites, you know, nail bites, whatever, bug bites. Yeah. I mean, prove it in the context of Scripture and use the terms... <laughs> as it's been taught in doctrine, as the doctrine is unfolded in the letters of the apostles, because God teaches through them. So when I look at that, then, then we go back to what you mentioned, brother, is that, you know, what is that standard? The standard is the perfection of the glory of God in his person, with, that only Christ as a human being needs. So therefore, if I am never lying, but I have, all, I have lied before, I'm still violating the law. But in my justification, I am a law keeper. As if I have never lied, though I lie, where is the where is the scale? The scale is not there. It's either absolute perfection or absolute death. And so that is that is where we are. The problem comes is that there are people who would say that and then turn right around and say, but I'm not growing that way. And I think what well, I think there's a confusion. There are some in this circle that would say, uh, you know, brother, uh, no, 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 no. If you're not growing to be more like Jesus, they confuse glorification with a, as a process, not a final event of a work of recreation. Um, and then some people would say, you know, well, I used to be a, a pimp. I used to be a drug dealer. I used to beat my mom. I used to curse real bad. And when I and when God saved me, that stuff went away. That's not sanctification. That's not sanctification. That's a good point. I mean, that's not what the term means. Now, let's say, let's just, for the sake of argument, let's use it as an example. Let's just stop saying sanctification. Let's say set apart. We talked about this a little bit last night, Scott. Let's just say that that I have language issues with how I speak to people. I'm snarky or I may use profanity. And I want my mouth to match the work of God in my life. Is that a, is that a bad thing? No, no. It's not a bad thing. Not bad. And as a matter of fact, Paul even says, let there be no 
um, crude joking named among you in Ephesians. We'll talk sure. about that tomorrow. I'm sure it's discipline. Uh, you know, let this not be named among you. So it's, it's good to tell the sanctified, don't have these things. But it doesn't make me more in Christ, even though I may be wanting God to set my mouth apart for his glory. How about we stop using that term and do what Paul says? Do all things, whatever you say, whatever you do, in word or in deed, when you drink or eat, do it all for the glory of Christ. Do it all in the name of Christ. So this is a responsiveness of our worship, Romans 12, 1 and 2, that is done by the Spirit of God monergistically through the renewal every day of our mind in the knowledge of the grace and the perfection of the sanctification that is completed in Christ Jesus. So I think we use the term wrong. And I think that that would be my answer. Yeah. Show me in the scripture. I don't want to see a word study. Put your concordance up and read the Bible. That's my thought. Alright, what is the law written on the heart? I'm guessing like in the New Covenant, the promise of the New Covenant, uh, New Heart I'll give you, I've written Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. The Assumption always is when people see law, they think the Ten Commandments. That's assumption. The law is the gospel. Because that's what is expounded. When Christ comes, he's expounding the gospel. The apostles are expounding the gospel. The gospel is the law that has been written in the hearts of all of God's people. And the writing of that law is by the Holy Spirit. Because if Christ is risen, he says to his disciples, I am going to go to the Father and he will send the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the biggest promise coming out of the work of Christ. The Holy Spirit is he, if you go and read Jeremiah 31, it sounds like there's repetition. But at the end of it, Jeremiah or uh, Jeremiah or Ezekiel say, and the Holy Spirit, I'll put my spirit in them. So ultimately, that's the conclusion of the matter because there's some Hebraism there, repetition. The lines are being repeated as you're going from one verse to the next. They're not saying different things. They're saying the one thing. So the Holy Spirit is the one who is qualified the Holy Spirit is he who is working in us. So you see Paul talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And when you go, say, and read in Romans 8, between Romans 1 and Romans 7, there are just a few mentions of the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8 alone, there's 20 times that the Holy Spirit is mentioned. Okay, to say what? The Holy Spirit is the one. He is the law. He is God. The problem that we have in our circles, I'll say the reform circles, so-called, is the minimization of the Holy Spirit as far as the working in the life of the believer. For some reason, they think that he's inadequate to do the work that God has set him aside to do in the people. So the law that has been written in the hearts of God's people, the gospel, is a, it's faith, okay? It's salvation by grace alone, okay? Is salvation by the work of Christ alone. That's the law. And uh, see, that is singular. It's not laws. People say, oh yeah, laws is Ten Commandments. 
the writers of the New Testament were not Gentiles. They were Hebrews. They were Jews. If they wanted to put you back under the law, that's exactly what they would have done. It was so easy to them. They grew up. They memorized that whole thing. They knew it of head. They did not do that. Where did they point you? They pointed you to Christ. His finished work. And that I believe is what the law that is being written on us. And we see the, the conclusion, I mean, in the text itself, um, the reason why I think that you're right defining the law written on the heart as uh, Christ in his fullness is that the text says in verse 34, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, if the law written on the heart was just a carbon stamp of the Old Testament law, then I'm forced to battle with this passage of Scripture. For by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. The law was not given unto forgiveness of sins. It's not the, it was never the law's purpose. You, you, by the law, you will live by doing the law. You will not be killed off right now if you do the law, if you fulfill portions of the law. And the text says... For I will forgive their iniquity, and if I read the whole verse 34 in its context, it says, And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. So who's in, who's being referred to here? The people of the Lord. They will all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. So to know the Lord in this way is to be forgiven of iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. So the law on the heart must be representative here of the complete gospel work that Christ has completed. And, and you know, as we look back to the cross, but I just want to just share with you the, the the difference here between what we're saying and what you'll typically hear in a reformed church. Now I'm holding in my hand here. This is a copy of the Reformation Heritage Study Bible. It's by a very popular Bible publisher here in the here in the states. And it's widely available, widely circulated, um, and it has some decent historical information in it, and it makes for a nice reading Bible. But just in the notes, I just happened upon this just as we were discussing this. You heard two men sit here and say that the law written on the hearts of men that will lead to the, iniqui the, the iniquity being remembered no more and sins being forgiven, i.e. Christ and his finished work. Listen to what it says here in the, in the notes. This is a reformed understanding of this passage. Listen. God will, and then, and then they'll put in quotes, write the law in their hearts, which is to shatter the hardened mindset of sin and create a new desire to do God's will by the Spirit. You understand, you go from the bondage of the tablets, the sure destruction wrought in law-breaking people because of the violation of the law written on stones, to the same bondage being stamped on the heart, only this time we have the Holy Spirit to supplement our doings. We have the Holy Spirit to help us to do these laws that we could not do beforehand. And so we might get into this at another passage, another question, but it needs to be said even now. This, this insidious notion that the Spirit of God bats clean up for Jesus Christ needs to be dealt with. It needs to be cut off at its base and called heresy like it is. The Spirit of God did not come in to tie up all the loose ends left undone by the cross of Christ. 
Now, this drivel in this Bible that says that the only reason the law was stamped in our hearts was so we would have the bondage on the inside of us that the Spirit of God would now help us not really do <laughs> is absolute garbage. It's fit for nothing but a bird cage. It's lousy. He whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to them that believe. And the, the, what the working does, what the working of, of Christ is in Jeremiah is this beautiful promise that we're going to be a forgiven people. Not a people who fulfill all righteousness by way of perfectly keeping some list of rules. But a people who have been forgiven by the perfect sacrifice of the promised Messiah. And it's not all the Holy Spirit has to come in and, and, and help you do a super-duper good job of failing. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and I hate to be so terse, but you know, we're living in a day and age where you just got to say it like it is. Too many people dance around this like it's some you know, scary thing. Look, you either believe Christ finished the work and that you are complete in Him because the text actually says ye are complete in Him. Or you're backpedaling and you're trying to put Moses and Sinai, okay, into the new covenant. And I'm telling you, why did Jesus come at all? Why didn't they just send the Holy Spirit? Why didn't God just send the Holy Spirit to help us live the law? Jesus, did Jesus need to die for the Spirit of God to come? The Spirit of God operated all through the Old Testament. So I challenge, I challenge anyone's Un, uh, proper Christology, okay? You don't have a pure view of Christ, a biblical view of Christ, if you continually insist that the Spirit of God has to come in and finish the work. Because Jesus finished the work or He didn't. So is Christ a liar? And is the Spirit of God just a supplemental booster shot to, to take up the, the inadequacies of Calvary? Uh, according to the Reformation Heritage Study Bible... Jeremiah's promise is that the Holy Spirit's going to come to help you do all the law keeping. <laughs> That's Reformed theology in a nutshell. At least the way it's been presented uh, since Westminster. Uh, and, and some people mitigate it and some people moderate it. And I appreciate the great contributions of men who have come through Presbyterian uh, uh, heritages and, 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 and upbringings and, and were careful to uh, dissuade people from that notion. There are good... Uh, there are good faithful preachers in the Presbyterian Church that will not preach that hard-line Westminster stuff. But I'm telling you, more than more than a few will go ahead and tell you that the law, the Spirit of God is going to help you do the law. And if you don't do the law, you're not saved. And if that's what Jeremiah was promising us, then huh, that's no gospel at all. Uh, I'm going to make another statement on what law has been written on our hearts. <laughs> The Lord Jesus said, when I go to the Father, I'll send the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't talk about himself. He testifies in our hearts about Christ. Yes. So the law that has been written in our hearts is the testimony of Christ. That's right. It is the testimony of the gospel. And what you're going to hear the Lord Jesus saying to his disciples as he is heading towards the cross is his commandment of love, 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 love. Now, love is impossible outside Christ. It cannot be done. 
love only happened because of Christ Jesus. And that same Christ Jesus is mediating his life, his love, himself by the Holy Spirit. So the testimony of Christ in us is the law that has been written. I'm telling you the truth. That's the truth. <laughs> it's the testimony of Christ. But people, because they don't understand, we're talking spiritual matters here. God is interested in imprinting Christ in our hearts. Even in our glorification, we shall be like Christ. We shall be conformed to the fullness of the image of Christ. So God is interested in seeing Christ in us. And when he sees Christ in us, that's the testimony of the gospel. That's the law that has been written. And for these guys to come and say, well, if you tell people that they can't do, they're not doing the, the, the law, then that's going to be licentiousness and antinomianism and stuff like that. No, the Holy Spirit is God, people. He is God. He is God. And since when did God ever fail to do anything? If the Holy Spirit wants to convict you, he can convict you of sin. And the Holy Spirit actually convicts more than the law of Moses. Because the Holy Spirit will come through Christ and say, well, if you just look at that woman and you desire her, guess what? You are so dead. You are guilty as one who committed adultery. You see that? If you had your brother, guess what? He is good as a murderer. That conviction does not come from Moses. That's conviction of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is able, he is sufficient to do all that the law, what the law could not do, God did by sending his son. And guess what? God did not just send his son. He sent also the Holy Spirit. Because Christ said, when I go to the Father, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. Okay, I'll, I'll be. I'll stop there. What about Galatians 6.14? God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 16 says, As many as wrought by this rule, yes. peace and be on them. Kind of a summation of what I think you guys said. The principle of life is that we look to Christ and his gospel that satisfies all, which gives us a reverential view of the law. And, and how many times in the New Testament has the gospel itself been referred to as the law of Christ? We see that, and frankly, as I look at Jeremiah, I see a law written on my heart that gives that, that gives me assurance that my sins have been blotted out and that I have full and complete and intimate fellowship with God. In other words, I need no man to tell me, know the Lord, because I know the Lord in pardoning mercy. The law of Moses cannot take away sins. It takes Christ. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. So the inward law must be the work of Christ. And uh, I think it's it's essential that we see that because if we don't, I, again, and I, I reiterate because this is the crux of the matter, uh, it's codified in the very confession I'm looking at right here. There are people who battle with this notion of assurance based on their ability to do and to do or to not do and to not do, all because they do not understand the law of Christ, and that is the, the abiding power, presence, and completion of the gospel and how that is applied to the believer's heart at salvation. He will remember our sins and iniquities no more for Christ's sake. We, we see that same wording uh, in the 23rd Psalm. Uh, 
he leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Uh, that should be very profound to us. It's not about us. It's not about us. He leads us for his own purposes, for his own pleasure. Hallelujah. He's a shepherd. He's got a big old crook. He'll grab us around the neck if he needs to, and he'll keep us in line. And if you think you're going to get away, go talk to Jonah about it. <laughs> All right, go talk to the go talk to the one sheep that's got, that, that got loose while the ninety and nine were safely put away. What happened? Shepherd went out a searching yes. and threw that sheep over his back, hauling him right on home. All right, we serve a God who finished the work. The work is done, and we now can rejoice in awe and look up and cry a little and laugh a little and know that he's got this whole thing <laughs> under control. Brother James mentioned something about the murderer, the one who hates his brother. And we see in First John, First John is one of those areas people go to, well, if you say you have fellowship of life and you walk in darkness, but you don't walk in darkness when you have fellowship. You don't walk in darkness when the light of Christ is shining upon you. You don't walk in darkness. It doesn't happen. It the problem is we think darkness is what darkness is not. Darkness is what you were talking about, brother, in that un what? Unrighteousness, the deceit of unrighteousness, and the darkness. When did Jesus talk about darkness in John three? He's talking to the teacher of all Israel. And he says, This is the judgment. That the light has come to the world, but people, including you, Nicodemus, love the darkness because their works are evil. Nicodemus, your prayers, your study, your teaching, your worship, everything you do at the temple, everything you do every day as a Pharisee is darkness because the work that you do is evil. It is unbelief. But those who do, they don't come to the light because if you come to the light of Christ, it's grace alone. It's an offense. Yeah. And then that offense shines the light on everything I built, the Bible, everything I've accomplished. And it makes me look like a fool because I was a fool. I was a blind fool. Now I'm a fool for the life of Christ. And those who do come to light do so, what does Jesus say, so that it may be clearly seen that their works are being carried out by God. And if you think about then John goes on to his first epistle. He says in verse 9, there's a lot there. Don't do this, don't do this. But little children, you're not like this. You're in Christ. And when your heart condemns you, he gives assurance in verse 19 of chapter 3. He says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and thus reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, what does our heart say? Well, I must not be a Christian. I must not be saved. I must not look at my life. Look at my life. Oh, woe is me. What does He say? God is greater than our heart. God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive because we keep what... We, what does he say? We keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And if we stop right there, they'd say, Aha, gotcha. They gotcha. But John doesn't leave us hanging below. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps these commandments are those who abide in God. Faith, Christ, and God in him. Abides also in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. And then you go on down, he talks about testing the Spirit. Be careful, there's a bunch of spirits out there. There's the spirits of unrighteousness, of people who come back and try to burden you and put a new burden on you about the law, about obedience, about all sorts of so called sanctification and this work that does not operate in the context of the gospel. Let's look at what else he says there. Let us love one another. 
For love is from God, and whoever loves God has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love God does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that what is it? That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Now, we know the gospel and the content of what Christ has done and what the Father has done in the work of the Son. So we don't have to reiterate that, but it's there. And he says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be, he explains it, the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we all then also surely love one another. Yes. Isn't that common sense, John is saying? Come on, guys. Yes. The love of God for you, love each other. You know what the Holy Spirit does? He causes us to love each other in that work because we're reminded in our maturity and growing the knowledge of grace in our temporal sanctification. If somebody wants to dare use that silly term, we're reminded of the work of God by Christ. And then by this we know that we abide in Him because He has given us His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love of God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in Him. By this, this is the key, is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for when? For tomorrow? Sure. Well, what about the day of judgment? We have confidence for the day of judgment, not because of how good we've done, but because of the Spirit of God within us through the work of Christ for us and the Father's love toward us. We have confidence for the day of judgment because as He is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love. That perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, then he goes back to what's the context of his teaching. Hating each other. If anyone says he loves God, but hates his brother, is a liar. It's a lie to say you hate your brother. Isn't it? Why do we always think of the negative? We're lying if we say we hate our brother and God has loved us in Christ. Let's think about that for a second. That's a, just a thought. So tell me again what the confidence is in the text. The confidence. Yes. The confidence is that we have been given the Spirit of God and we obey the commandment to believe in Christ. And because we've been given the Spirit, we have confidence that we are in fact children, sanctified, okay. redeemed. Well, let me let me read something to you just as a again, I, it might look like I'm on a, a some sort of a a tirade against reformed theology. Maybe I am. But listen to this. Well, I've got a few fans out there. <laughs> no, listen. What you just said, listen to what chapter 18 of the Westminster Confession, section 2, first sentence says about everything you just said there. You just said, he who believes in the Son has life. The scripture, or the, the scripture says that the confession that so many people who wear the moniker Calvinist or Reformed, chapter 18, section 2, listen to this. Of the assurance of grace and salvation, says this certainty is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope. So again, now we're talking that you can't just believe what Scripture says. You've got to have something more. And the next thing I want to say, share is the section three, uh, sentence one. This infallible assurance doth not so belong to the essence of faith but that a true believer may wait long in conflict with many difficulties before he be a partaker of it. 
Now, did, did y'all catch what this says? This says that you do not have the right to assurance of faith, and it's not part of the essence of faith. The essence of faith does not include assurance. That's enough right there to cause any believer to stand up and walk out of whatever synagogue of Satan is preaching that mess. He who has the Son has life, and how do you know if you have life? You believe what he said. That's what the word. And then I checked the footnotes just for fun to see what passage they went to 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 give the church such hellish despair. <laughs> you don't have the right to assurance in your faith. You do not have the fundamental right to say that assurance is of the essence of saving faith, according to Westminster. You do not have that right. You must battle and wage war for it. Now, listen. They give us as an example First John chapter five verse thirteen. This is the verse they give you in response to say, yep, says right here, there's no assurance in salvation. Listen. These things I have written to you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Are you kidding me? This is, I mean, how could you stand in a pulpit and, and preach the same terms we use? Finished work of Christ. Monergistic salvation. Salvation by grace alone. And then look at the same people and say, Thank you're saved, don't you? Well, you don't have that right. You gotta fight for it. Anthony Burgess, back in the 1600s, wrote this kind of stuff. Listen. One of these reformed sages that everybody looks to, he says, There are signs of grace which, which by which a man may know whether he's in a state of grace or not. A man who lives in the habit of unrepentant sins, should be assured that he is presently in a damnable condition and that he will be so long as he lives that way. God's sanctifying grace produces a supernatural life within us. See now, leaning back more on the Spirit's work within us, not the work of Christ, but it gets better. Listen to this next part. Some of you, your ears are going to turn red. It is the infused principle of a holy life. Did you catch that? A new creation produced by regeneration infused righteousness wrought in the hearts of men and women by the Holy Spirit. How is that any different than the imparted righteousness of the, of the mystics or of the Roman Catholics? It's Tom T. Hall theology, beloved. Me and Jesus got our own thing going. <laughs> Me and Jesus got it all worked out. Well, maybe, because I'm not allowed, according to Westminster, to have assurance. And I cannot say to you, I am a Christian because I believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the Scriptures. No, I am robbed of that assurance and told instead to go take an inventory of the infused righteousness wrought in me by the so-called holy works that I'm able to perform. This is poison. And it ought to be excised, and we ought to look at it and call it out for what it is. It is not gospel. It is not good news. You'd all leave here going, now what? I believe on Jesus, but do I really believe on Jesus? You know, Do I have enough good works? What is a good work? Am I good enough? Have I sinned today? Do I commit patterns of unrepentant sin? What other kind of sin is there? <laughs> Someone tell me if you, you ever have you ever committed a repentant sin? <laughs> have you ever committed an unwilling sin? I love that one too. Willful sin. I got news for you. Every time you've lost your temper with your spouse, you wanted to do it. Every time you stole a pen from a bank and you looked around to see if anybody was looking, yeah, 
Don't tell me, well, the Spirit was inside warring against my flesh. And, They're free. Yeah, but that was a gel pen. You know, I needed it. Guys, it's good news because it's from Jesus. He didn't come and say certain conditions apply. He is the condition. It's met. And you should be excited for this. Now, people are going to hate you to no end for preaching this gospel. But their gospel is not giving them one ounce of assurance when their head hits the pillow at night. How could it? They're going to dare say they're offering God work sufficient enough to prove evidence of conversion to complete holiness in the eyes of Almighty God? I don't think so. So, he whom the Son has set free is free indeed still. So that's, you know, Westminster is wrong. And we need, we need to be careful. Uh, and some of these name brand preachers you see on the TV, they believe every jot and tittle of Westminster and they'll teach it to you and they'll subtly include it into stuff. They'll say things like, you're not saved by mere faith. You're not saved by mere confession. You've got to add all this other junk. Be careful, be careful, be careful. Oh, may as well go there. 1689. Uh, it is a carbon copy in so many areas. You've got to be careful. It's got to be, you got to be very careful with this stuff, guys. Be very careful because you're talking about statements that, and we could talk about the ones over regarding sanctification, uh, in both of the documents. It's a political document. We must be very careful with that. And, and in the end, know this. If anybody's looking at you, who in the Bible said to question God? It was the serpent in the garden. Have not. God wrote say that. You know, come on, go ahead. You take a bite of this, you'll be just like God. You know, listen, that's what a lot of these confessions and a lot of the, a lot of the fruit of these confessions leads to. You're second-guessing the gospel and you're saying, well, I'm going to go with these guys. You may as well get on a boat on the Tiber and head right across and head on back to Rome because this is, this is just the slow boat to the same destination. <laughs> oh. Right, Another time. Here's the, it's kind of a longer question here, and uh, I'm going to add a couple words to it to kind of add some more to it. question says, I've noticed that there are many Protestant confessions that divide holiness into two categories, objective and personal. They also tend to divide sanctification into categories, positional and progressive. Do you agree with this, with, with these divisions? If not, why not? And I want to add, maybe as part of the question, is I guess if a person says that it's progressive, they mean that it's a process. That word's used a lot in describing sanctification, that it is a process up against a positional. So, I mean, I know in one of our messages we kind of hit on that. I kind of didn't mind because I talked about separately the sanctification of the Spirit. But you guys want to hit on some of those points there? I think historically, we have to understand the premise of um, of the confessions to begin with. They were necessary in the context of the conflict of oppression and persecution because you had the particular Baptist and you had Westminster, you had issues of covenant theology that were not I'm a Baptist, I'm not Presbyterian, I don't hold their polity, I don't hold their issues of baptism, I don't hold their covenant theology. Um, anyway, I didn't say that. Anyway, uh, you know, so when it comes to, you know, 1646, 1648, 1689, and the West Confession, we have to read those documents in the full context of the depositions. So you're talking about it, so just like the ones you, you quoted, you have to read the, the, the sentence in light of Scripture, not the other way around. 
the same way you would do what I say right now. If you do not say, if you do not take what I say in my teaching in light of Scripture, then I can make it mean anything I want. But if you take it in light of Scripture, so what does the Scripture say about these the, the verbiage? And I, I mentioned this just a tad. I was going to teach an entire session on it, but we just we don't have enough time, enough you know hours in the day. But words cannot be heresies. The word progressive sanctification is not heretical. It's a word that means an ongoing. Um, being set apart. What matters is when that becomes heretical is when it, the meaning behind that bumps up against the gospel or takes away from the gospel or conflates with the gospel. What if someone means in that sense? And I'm going to talk about this a little bit, a little bit, maybe three minutes tomorrow. What if someone means by that, I, want, I see the Lord working in me in the fullness of his power to set myself, set my life apart temporarily because is the word of sanctification actually not literally in this word set apart? I want my life to be set apart for the Lord. It has nothing to do with the grace of God giving me to the gospel, but it has everything to do with the instructions, the commands of the apostles to me that I will not forsake the gathering of the assembly. I will not uh, hate my brother. I will not uh, murder <laughs> through gossip. You know, that type of thing. I, I, you should not do this. You cannot do this. You will not do this. You should not. And if you do, I'm going to cast you out of the fellowship. You will not have sexual immorality among you, Paul says. Do not have it. It is forbidden. Because you are in Christ. Do not have this name among you. I hear that there are those who, and I'm going to do that tomorrow. I'm going to do a case study. I'm going to do a case study of 1 Corinthians. I'm going to do a case study of Corinth. I'm going to do a case study of Galatians. I'm going to do a case study of Ephesus. I'm going to do a case study of Thessalonica. And I'm going to show you with those three cities in that region, of how progressively different those things are. When I say progressive, I'm going to show you a real bad church to a real good church. You know, we're going to see, we're going to see all the flavors of the instruction of the apostles. Where Paul then could say, in the verbiage of maybe 500 years ago, I want you to be sanctified in your living. Please. You are holy in Christ, but I want you to be sanctified. Now, I think it's poor use of the term. I think it's something that's really dangerous because in our day, as I've already said, sanctification means righteousness from most worship. Right. We're getting progressively righteous, which is an abomination, which is blasphemous, which is a mockery of the gospel. So in that, I would say that the confessions, they need a workover. They need an update of language. They need caveats. They need, they need, they need, I, um, I mean, my goodness, the new, the old King James. I don't know anybody who uses 1611. I don't even know the three people in the world who have a copy of those. And, and you can't even read the letters because the letters we have today don't even exist in that way, 1611. So, you know, the S, the S's or F's and all sorts of weird stuff. Words like intercourse, and God had intercourse with this person, and they had intercourse with this person, and that means they talk. I mean, we don't use that word like that anymore, so let's go read it to our church, because uh, it, it can cause confusion. Language is necessary, and language evolves. I mean, you know the, the word Google? Google it. You know, everybody around here drinks the Coke. Georgia, they drink the Coke. What kind of Coke do you want? A Dr. Pepper. I mean, that's a dumb. Uh, you know what I'm saying? If you want a soda, what flavor? I want that. We use words erroneously. And what happens is sort of what Jason was referring to, is you got people who stand on these things without any consideration of what the Scripture is actually teaching and how it is sometimes erroneous in its language, wrong in its application, etc. So we've got to come to a place to where we can express those things and establish them. We do everything according to the authority of Scripture. If I preach a sermon, if I give a commentary, you use Scripture to judge it. If I give you a 
uh, the Nicene Creed, use Scripture to judge it. If I give you Article 18 of the WCF, use Scripture to judge it. And if the Scripture says that it's wrong, guess what? It's wrong. It's wrong. That's how we need to be careful on those things. I was going to say, to judge everything, you have to always go back to Christ. The moment that you veer away from Christ, even your definitions begin to change. You begin to veer away from the truth. So when you read the New Testament, the apostles understanding things, having been taught the gospel by Christ. You see Paul say in Ephesians chapter 1, chapter 2, he's working the work of God. The work of God through Christ, the work of God through the Holy Spirit. This is who you are. This is your standing before God. You are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Christ redeemed by his blood. So this is who you are. You have been adopted. Your birth certificate has changed. Your passport has changed. You are in Christ. So knowing all that about yourself, there's nothing that you did to be this. This is who you are. Now, let's talk about some housekeeping issues. So, people take the housekeeping issues and condition them. And make them salvation. And say, no, you have to do your bed every morning or else you are not my child anymore. That's not how the gospel is. Why? Because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. They are without repentance. There's nothing about you not doing your bed that's going to surprise God. Because he knows all things. So I'm going to be talking tomorrow about the indicative and the imperative. The indicative is what Christ did for you. What God is going to do. Everything that God is doing or has done, accomplished in Christ. That's what establishes you and your standing before God. There's absolutely nothing that you do as the redeemed that establish any standing before God for you. So those instructions need to be understood. Like Brother uh, James Tipping was saying, the use of the word sanctification, like uh, I see Paul using it, is it in First Thessalonians 4, 1 to 12, Paul says, Finally, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more by the progressive people. As soon as they see more and more, like right there, right there is progressive sanctification. No, that's not what is being said. Just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. So these are brethren, these are the saints, and the Holy Spirit is now saying, you guys know the truth. You are the children of God. This is how we conduct business in the household of God. Of God. But those who want to condition salvation will take every one of those things and condition them. And that's what we are against. We are not against people following the commands of the Lord. The Lord says, you bear each other's burdens. If one is overtaken by sin or temptation, you, those who are mature in the faith, you go and help such a one and gently restore them. Okay, I'm not gently restoring him to make him saved. He's already saved. <laughs> but I'm helping him back to walk in the confidence of his acceptance before God. Yeah. And even in, the, uh, even in the severe moments of church discipline, church discipline itself is designed unto restoration. 
the idea isn't retribution. The idea isn't just to, uh, you know, apply some sort of a penalty and then we all get to sit in the church building and say, look how holy and spiritual we are. I'm sure glad we put out that bum. You know, that's not the point. We're not, we're not, we shouldn't rejoice. It's a, it's a terrible and sad and tragic time in the life of a church when you, or a church assembly, when you have to go to that extreme and, and basically cast someone outside the fellowship. It happened in, in my church, uh, about two years ago. There was a particular, uh, situation that could not be resolved in any other way. There was absolutely no other option but to put this individual out of the church. And it was horrible. As a pastor, it was one of the toughest things that I've done in ministry. And, you know, when those situations arise like that, it, it's not a matter of, oh boy, look what we get to do. It's, it's, a, it's a sad moment. Uh, the, the, the household of faith should feel a, a real sense of, of burden because if one of us hurt, we should all hurt, even if they're stubborn and rebellious. Likewise, we don't only care for one another in the church by following the commands of the scriptures, the imperatives, but we also care and demonstrate our justification amongst those who are outside of the church. For example, James teaches us in chapter 2 of James that, hey, there's a guy comes in your church looking all good, got a big old ring on his finger, and another guy comes in dressed like he got dressed out of a garbage can, and you put the fellow in the, the big fancy ring up front, and you, you treat the other guy like garbage because he's, he's a nobody. You know, that's not cool. And it goes on to say this. It says, What doth it profit, my brother, and though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can that faith save? In other words, how, how helpful is your faith going to be to someone who's starving to death if all you do is look at them and say, Hey, tough situation. I'll pray for you. Be warmed, be filled, and then you walk away. Now hold on. You know, I think I think it was the, some of the old timers, and this is sort of like a folk theology, but I think it makes sense. They talk about putting wings on their prayers or feet on their prayers. For instance, if you know somebody down the street is is hurting for money, and you know they need forty or fifty dollars to pay their light bill, or they're going to get their electric shut off, you can you can pray for them, and that's a beautiful thing. But you know what might make a lot of sense as a Christian? to walk down there with $40 if you've got it to give. Or if somebody's hungry, it makes a lot of sense to go ahead and give them food, maybe a place to sleep in Jesus' name. And I think that's a beautiful thing to do. Uh, does it make you saved? Does it make you holy? No. But I think that those right actions typically work from a right understanding of, of God's grace in Christ. That's why James is loaded down with statements like that. You know, yeah, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. He was actually poking fun. He was trying to speak about the impossibility of you demonstrating your faith to the broader public without some sort of effort on your part. Not faith that saves, but a faith that's justified among men. You would say, man, that Booth, his, he's got worthless faith. Well, I don't want anything to do with his religion. I mean, he said he'd pray for me, but I got three kids at home that don't have any food, and you know, I'm I'm laid up with a back injury and can't work, and that's all they'll do. They'll pray for me. I mean, really? The scripture is pretty clear. It says here in verse 15, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say to them, Depart in peace, be warned and be filled, notwithstanding you give them not the things which are needful for the body, what doth it profit? So we're not trying to negate the clear teachings of the ought-tos. 
of the New Testament. Yeah, you need to be good people. Can can a Christian be an absolute bad person? You better believe it. Read Corinthians. Uh, read James. Uh, of course, do those things. But somewhere along the lines, these clear these clear moral teachings have somehow been sort of mingled and 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 fused together with whether or not one is a Christian or not. And so you've taken the you've taken the condition of all righteousness being met in Christ, and you've muddied the waters with it's Christ plus this, that, or the other. And I think that's what we still have to guard against without flushing the imperatives uh, of Scripture because they are needful for the church because we're still human beings. We need a kick in the in the pants uh, to do the right thing and to shun the wrong every day of our lives. Uh, I want to speak a little bit more on the use of the law for sanctification. But that's one of the biggest ones that we always bumpy heads with people. The New Testament is very clear to tell us the function of the law. The New Testament says the law was given to give the knowledge of sin. The law increases transgression. It does not curb transgression. It amplifies transgression. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says, The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. And I call that the triangle of death. Sin, law, and death. We have to understand that. That's the triangle of death right there. Once we have that combination, it's a potent combination. That's the most potent combination there is. That combination sends you straight to hell. Christ alone is the solution to every one of those things. Christ overcame sin. Christ overcame death. Christ fulfilled the law and nailed the law. See what the Holy Spirit says. And this power of sin is the law. The power of sin is the law. It didn't say the power of Salvation is the law. The power of salvation is the gospel. The law only gives strength to sin to condemn. Now, I'm going to ask someone who has better sense than myself. How do you expect to be made better by something that empowers your sin? The law empowers the sin. It gives power. It's a nuclear reactor that empowers you to sin the more. That's what the law does. So how do you expect to be made better by that which empowers your sin? It has to be killed. And that's what the gospel says. Christ nailed the handwriting of ordinances that were against us. And the reformed people come and say, oh, that was just the, the ceremonial. No, it does not say the ceremonial. <laughs> it's the handwriting. The ceremonial law was never against me. The killing of bulls and goats was never against me. It was trying to help me in some way. <laughs> but it could not help. Yeah, the letter that kills, the very ten commandments that people have fallen head over heels over, is the one thing that's going to kill them. Mm-hmm. So it's not true that we need the law for sanctification. There's not a single verse for it. Because Paul in Galatians said, You foolish ones, 
having begun by the spirit, are you now seeking to be perfected by the flesh? So the flesh, sin, law, death, they go together. It's clear teaching. People are just sold to the traditions of the church. But it's false. Okay. Well, people won't believe us because we are nothing. We don't have big names and stuff like that. But we have scripture on our side. <laughs> we have the name of Christ on our side. The law is not for sanctification, people. Just bring me one, half a verse. <laughs> only the Holy Spirit, only grace is sufficient to sanctify and justify. All right. You guys deal with the text that is popularly used to sometimes condition final salvation on how you perform in your sanctification out of Hebrews. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord and maybe give some explanation of that. And explain maybe what you've heard some of these people that you're, we're countering here this weekend as well as presenting a biblical position for sanctification sort of show the contrast of views. Uh, what they do with that text that seems to be the big one, one of the big ones that they use. Hebrews 12, 14. Hebrews 12. All right, hold on to that one. And when I deal with this one, we'll do that one next. But this is uh, Hebrews 12, 14? Yeah. All right. I'm sure each one of you want to touch on it a little bit. All right. Well, first of all, we need to understand that Paul, he wrote the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, Peter affirms that. And until... I mean, it's, it's historically been the writer of Hebrews until contemporary times. Okay. Paul wrote Hebrews, it's his doctrine, it's his voice, and it is his, it is his theology. As a Pharisee as well, Paul is writing to the Jews who are born again by the gospel. And because of that, if we remember what Jesus is uh, in John chapter, where they say, well, or John chapter 7, what is he going to do? Gonna be the, is he going to go out into dispersion? Is he going to be the prophet to those, to those Jews now? You know, they poke fun at Jesus about being the teacher or the rabbi of these people. And so Paul writes this letter as an apologetic against Judaism. Okay? So when we get to chapter 12, there's a lot of, as a matter of fact, there's 61 sermons that I did years ago getting up to that point before we get to chapter 12. And it's frustrating because in order to understand chapter 12, we have to have gone through the totality of the letter. It's a letter. Paul didn't put that big fat 12 up there with the, Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. I mean, you know, it's just, it, it's not Paul's intention to segment his teaching. Because if you look at verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, therefore. What is that therefore, therefore? <coughs> therefore, now the conclusion of the first 11 chapters that I've said to you, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside. Now, who is us? The saints. Who are us? The sanctified, the redeemed, the church, the beloved, the elect. Those who are the audience of his letter. We are the believing ones. So he's saying, let us lay aside every weight, anything that drags us down. Have you ever run with a vest on or had a bunch of... Groceries in, you know, you move a little slower, you're carrying a, you know, carrying a big toddler that should be walking, but these tired, they're tired. I mean, it carries you, it's a weight. Let's lay aside every weight. Let's lay aside every sin which clings so closely. And then the image here is about running a race. It's about running. It's imagery. It's an analogy of 
someone competing for something and running for something. So imagine these kids out there playing soccer and we tie our water jugs to their ankles. And we also put some three-year-olds out there to run and snatch their shoelaces untied while they're running. Imagine how hard and frivolous this soccer match is going to be. This is the, this is the, the weightiness of this. This faith that everyone had in the person of Jesus Christ, even if not explicitly understanding it. They did not receive that which was promised. Abraham did not receive the promise of the gospel in his day. He rejoiced in the presence of the gospel before him when the day of Christ came. And that's what makes the Jews want to kill Jesus in John chapter 8, because he said before Abraham was, I am. And so all of this is, is here. Paul has has con- convinced his, his readers that Judaism is a dead shadow. It's the it's the cardboard cutout on the booklet. We read what the outline might be, but we need to hear the soul story. Judaism was a picture, a preview of the story of the covenant of redemption. The covenant of grace is the only covenant that we have in the totality of the Bible. Adam was never promised life through obedience. He was promised death through disobedience. You have to understand that. So there is never life. This is what you just said. There's never life in the letter. It is always death. But when the law comes to life, I die, Paul says in Romans 7. So now, because all this is true, these people who were commended were commended by their faith. I'm sorry I have to go through all this to get to this text. But so we they did not receive what we promised. Since God has provided something better for us, they, apart from us, they should not be made perfect in that sense. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud, let us lay aside all these things. Let us run with endurance. What does that mean? Holding on, keeping on running. The race that is set before us, what is that race? The life of the young. These Jews were suffering very, very badly for their, for their, uh, what? For their lives. Because of their faith. And then what does this race look like? What are we doing? We're looking. You see that? We're looking to Jesus. Who is he? He is the one who starts and finishes. He starts and finishes our faith. So right there, we already have the answer to this question. We already have the answer to this question, but let's continue in the context here. Who also ran a race in his own humanity, which was what? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. The cross is not his happy picnic. This is the judgment of God. It's the death of his flesh. This is terrible stuff. This is not fun for Christ. But he endured the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross because of the promises of God that he was the sanctified one. He was set apart by the Father for the sake of saving the elect of God. And he despised the shame and is currently seated with the right hand of God. So because of this, consider him, dear beloved. When you struggle, consider him. When you run, consider him. When you feel faint and you're weary and you can't hold on. In your struggle against sin, by the way, Paul says, none of you have been tempted to the point of shedding your blood and dying. None of you have prayed so hard that the vessels, the capillaries of your face burst open. And you were so tempted to walk away from the temptation to live in your flesh that you shed blood. All of these things are true. And have you forgotten the exhortation? Do not regard lightly the, the discipline of the Lord? Because some people will say, well, you know, I'm suffering. What's going on? God is disciplined. He's correcting. He's pruning. He's establishing us. What is discipline? Kid puts his finger in the light socket. Why do we pop their hands? Because we don't like people touching our light sockets and getting dirty. No, we don't want them to fry their finger. We don't want them to burden themselves or hurt themselves. 
So we correct that behavior. Or it's for discipline that you have to endure. This is what it is. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there? The father is not this one. If you're left without discipline and all, and in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If a runner wants to run and win, he has to train. And it hurts. And his coach has to say, that's terrible. Your time is terrible. You're, don't sit on the sideline. Quit! Get up and go, 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 go. You don't have time to play today. Drink water all the way there. You see, this is the picture that we have here. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who discipline us. This is a comparison there. How much more do we are subject to the Father's spirits and live? They discipline us for a short time as they seem best, but He disciplines us for our good that we may share in His sanctification, in His holiness, in His set apartness. So, in this evidence of our being set apart, the Scripture says that God, as our Father, disciplines us in the midst of our struggles. When we feel like there is no hope in the world, and we feel like everything we have is burning around us, we are able to identify the suffering of Christ, who was disciplined by the Father, yet knew no sin. We also, who are set apart in Christ and are the righteousness of God because of the work of Christ and His person, we are also disciplined in like manner, not in punishment, but in in being grown and pruned so that we would share in his being set apart. What does that mean? That we're being set apart? No. Because we are in Christ who is sanctified, we share in his place. So that's what Paul means when he talks to the Colossians. I pray that I may fill up what is lacking in the suffering of Christ for you. What was lacking in Christ's suffering? Nothing. But it wasn't visible to those people there. Peter says the same thing. Though you do not see him, you love him. Though you do not now, you have not seen him, you love him. Though you have, though you do not now see him, you love him. And you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. What's that look like? Screaming sometimes? Wailing? Falling on the ground and crying out for help? It's joy, Peter says. That's insane. That's crazy. That's what the scripture teaches us. So then... As he disciplines more good, we share this look. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by see the training of the Therefore, lift up your drooping hands. Lift it up and strengthen your weak knees. And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may be put out of joint, may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive. As you're doing this, listen. People are going to come against you. They're going to hate you. They're going to bombast you. They're going to defame you. They're going to curse you. They're going to lie about you. They're going to bear false witness against you. They're going to arrest you. They're going to kill your children in front of you. They're going to take your heads from your body for fun. They're going to throw you in a pen for thousands of people to watch a lion rip your bowels out while it devours your infant. A bear devours your infant in front of your husband, who then, in a fit of rage and hope that he might just take some sense of respect and dignity back to what has happened, the lion takes his life too. And in the midst of this, strive for peace with everyone. You see? Strive for peace with everyone. And strive for peace for holiness. Well, strive for peace and strive for the holiness. In other words, what are we doing? We're running into Christ. What is the holiness of God? It is Jesus. Who is the sanctified of God? It is Jesus. Who, what are we doing? We're resting. We're resting to the perfecter of our faith. We're resting there in this person who is the one who is our sanctification. We are resting and striving to hold fast, to keep our eyes on Christ. And that's what this looks like. Because if we're not set apart in Christ, we will not see the Lord. See that? He's not telling them to be careful because they might see the Lord. 
He's saying, you are set apart. You're going to see the Lord. But without this, you are set apart in Christ. You're going to see the Lord. But if you're set apart in Christ, you're going to see the suffering. And if you're going to see the suffering, you're going to see the persecution. If you're going to see the persecution, you're going to be tired. You're going to be weary. You're going to want to give up. And you want to throw your faith away. Remember all these people through all the millennia that didn't give up their faith? How did they not do that? Because Christ authored their faith. And Christ perfected their faith. And Christ finished their faith. Because they are sanctified. That's what it means. That is, and people that, and I'm just going to say this, and I'm usually not this strong in, in this because it's polarizing, but this it needs to be polarized. The people who say this is about personal holiness are as asininely ignorant as that recorder. Just leave it there. That recorder is ignorant. It has no mind. It knows nothing. This is not about personal holiness. About what we're doing. We're in the world. You think these people were what, throwing dice and having strip tease in the middle of the dispersion? These people don't have time to worry about filling up the flesh. The only flesh that they wanted to feed is to run away and to give up on Christ. And they could not do it because Christ had set them apart. They were sanctified. Amen. See that no one fails to attain the grace of God. What does that mean? Hold on, you're not going to lose the grace of God. This is not a didactic of how you can lose the grace of God. This is a teaching on what we're going to do, what God has done. It's already set forth in this. See that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Hold fast. You have the grace. It is yours. Don't run away. Because what has he already said here in chapter 10? There are many who will leave the faith. There are many who will never be counted amongst the number of the assembly because they cannot handle the heat of persecution. There are many, just like in John 12, who said they believe in Christ, but they're not confessing because they love the glory that come from men rather than the glory that comes from God. There is such a thing as believing in vain. There is such a thing as an earthly faith, as a worldly faith, as a fleshly faith. But that's not you, beloved. You hold fast. And don't become bitter because the bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. See that no one is sexually immoral and unholy like he saw. Why would he bring that up? Because what do people do when they're suffering? They find vices to try to find ways to just cover it. Don't, don't fall in that way. Esau sold his whole birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to adhere to the blessing, he was rejected. And he found no chance to repent with the salt of tears. And in verse 18, I'll just break tense in this place. When I think about what Paul is teaching for the latter part of chapter 12. You have not come to the law. You have not come to the law. You have not come to the obedience that cannot be done. You have not come to Sinai. You have not come to the tempest. You have come to Christ. You have come to Christ and the new covenant and to the blood of the Lamb of God that took away your sins and set you apart for Him. You have come to Christ whose blood cries out better than the blood of the Lord. That's, that's the context of that. Where in the world is Paul talking about getting your attitude straight and being personal forever? So, y'all, y'all, miss it, get it. Is there anything you want to add to that? I just want to make commentary on final judgment because if we move away from Christ, then we have to sneak in some things. We have to hitch up a trailer to bring some things to the final judgment. We have to understand what God is doing in the framework of the gospel. Christ is our righteousness, our holiness. He is everything. But not only that, he's also the judge. 
the Father has appointed the Son to be the judge. The Son is the judge, is also the advocate. So the one who is judging us is the very one who also is representing us. So this truth is brought out in Psalm 50, where God says, Okay, bring all my people to judgment. The Lord is bringing all his people to judgment, but he has two groups of people. The ones by whom he has formed a covenant with through sacrifice, and that is us. We have a covenant with God through the sacrifice of Christ. And one of the most important things that are stated in this psalm is in verse Psalm 50, that's one I'm talking about, verse 2. From Zion, the most beautiful of all places, God comes in splendor. So the most important thing to know about final judgment is where God is coming from. He is not coming from Mount Sinai for you. He is coming from Zion. And when God is coming in judgment from Zion, he is coming in grace. That's what it means. And then listen to the purpose of judgment. Because Judgment is not about you people, it's about Christ. Christ is vindicating his own righteousness. To say, these are my people, I paid for them, they are righteous because I said so. Listen to verse 15, Psalm 55.0. You need to understand verse 15. The Lord says, pray to me, when you are in trouble. Judgment is time of trouble. Christ says, pray to me. He is the one who is sitting in judgment of you and then listen to his promise. What did he say? And I will deliver you. And for what end? And you honor me. So judgment is for Christ to vindicate you so that you honor him. He is not judging you to say, oh, let me see if you were so sanctified or not. No, 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 no. It's for him that he may be honored as the Father is honored. Remember what he said in John 5, 24. The one who believes shall not come into judgment, but has, has passed from death unto life. Where do you get that authority to say that Jesus? Because all judgment has been given to him. He is the judge. And he has the right and he knows what's going to happen a judgment day, as he stated in Matthew chapter 7, many shall come to me on that day and say, so he already knows what people are going to say. So judgment is not Christ taking your good deeds and your bad deeds and trying to see on the scale if you just tip it just right to the other side, then you're in. No, Christ is there declaring his own righteousness and confirming your righteousness in him. And then you glorify him and say, thank you, Jesus. Which you're supposed to be doing anyway. Right. <laughs> uh, just a passage of scripture, and, and, and maybe just a couple here in, in Hebrews. Follow peace with all men and holiness. So follow peace, follow holiness. The scripture already tells us in Hebrews 10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And without without going into grand, uh, grand detail, skip to 14, chapter 10. For by one offering he hath perfected forever 
them that are sanctified. And we see again a promise we read from Jeremiah. We see it here. This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I'll put my laws into their hearts and their minds. I will write them and their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, I'll stop here and just camp just for a few seconds, the death of Christ matters. He had to come in the flesh and die on Calvary's tree. First John deals with the heresy that Christ did not come in the flesh. Uh, we see John dealing with that in a couple of places, even in his own gospel. There was an early heresy that said that Jesus didn't have a flesh and blood body. No, no, no. He came in the flesh. Verse 22 tells us about all of this because we have this great high priest. Verse 21, verse 22. Let us draw near with, uh, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Now then we see the imagery there is that of the sacrificial system. Our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. The, the, you know, it's, it's, it's all about Christ. He's faithful. He's just. And then we see, and let us consider to, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good work. So in light of what we have in the finished work of Christ, He's our prophet, priest, and king. He is our sacrifice. He is our propitiation. He is everything that gives us full assurance of faith. In light of that, let's consider one another and do what we can to love each other and you know, spur one another to do good things in light of the beauty of the finished work of Christ. It's all about His work. We're sanctified once for all. By the blood of Jesus Christ. The one offer he hath perfected by that one offer he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And so it's a finished work. It's a closed case. He did the work. And, and because he did the work, he gives us full assurance of faith. And we come by that through the preaching of the gospel. We're given repentance. We're given the gift of faith to believe all this. To, to turn away from dead works and toward faith in the living God. And to all that, we say, thank you, Jesus. He is our all in all. Uh, and I, I think that there's nothing in Hebrews that would contradict what Hebrews clearly teaches. And we've seen James uh, elucidated uh, in his uh, in more in-depth explanation of the context. <laughs> Anytime you d you're dealing with someone spewing off sound bites. I like to call you know the Facebook warriors that will just throw a couple of scripture references on the screen and that's all it takes, you know. John three sixteen. Boom. You know <laughs> take that. You know, it's it's like we using we're using uh, passages of the scripture like I don't know, spells or something, you know, we're you take a little John three sixteen and you know and he, he's the propitiation for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world and and, and you should just know that that just means exactly what I, the Armenian or the Universals would say it means. We know better. In context, it's clear. The Lord is the author and finisher of our faith. It's His, literally, His death on Calvary made all the difference. So I don't see following after peace with men as a consequence of being saved and following after holiness as the Gospel calls us to do. And, and that's why we're converted. We're converted to follow after the holiness of Christ. Those things 
aren't conditions whereby we will see the Lord that are met on our part. Their holiness was a condition met on Calvary's tree many, many, many centuries ago. He died for his people. He even said it was finished. And I take Christ at his word. All right. It's been uh, past an hour and a half. So we're going to have you shut her down. Uh, but she had a question. Yeah, what was the final yeah, what was the text? Oh, um, that's what I thought you said. Verse 18. Verse 18. We all with unveiled faces reflecting the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, which is from the Lord who is the Spirit. So your, your question is what? Uh, because they are drunk. The context totally denies uh, progressive sanctification. It's not talking about that. We are back on Mount Sinai, and Moses is going in to see the Lord, and every time that he went to see the Lord, he would come back and he would cover his face because some of the glory of God had gotten on him. And that was preaching the gospel. And that's what Apostle Paul is saying, that uh, what the Holy Spirit recorded as was happening to Moses was actually a gospel testimony. And so Moses had to cover his face. And that was a picture of the veil that now covers everyone in the context of the text where the Jews were, were refusing to come to Christ, refusing the knowledge of the gospel because they wanted to go back to Moses. And so the Holy Spirit says, anyone who wants to continue to be under the law only does that because the veil is still on them. They are mistaken because the law has glory. They actually, the law had glory. That's why Moses was glowing some. That's right. But, but the glory that Moses had was not intrinsic to himself. It was derived from being in the presence of God. So that glory was passing away, Moses yes. being a servant in God's house. Christ Jesus is the Son. He is the glory of God. And we are in the one who actually is the glory of yes. God. So now, you see the contrast. You have those who have veiled faces. And one who has a veiled face or veiled heart is not able to see Christ. They can't believe the gospel. They are always attracted to the glory of the law. But what they don't realize is that the glory of the law was fading away. But in contrast, we who believe the gospel, we have unveiled faces, you see? We have unveiled faces reflecting the glory of the Lord. So that's a picture of us being able to see Christ. We read Moses, we see Christ. We go into the law and we come up with Jesus from the law. Why? Because our faces have been unveiled. We see Christ. And God continues to transform us. But there's an eschatological aspect to that statement. To say, at the end of the ages, we are all going to be transformed 
into the glory of the person of Christ in his humanity. We're not going to be made deity. <laughs> no, we're only going to be conformed to the glorified humanity of Christ. Glorification does not make us gods like we actually become sovereign and all those things. No, that's not true. So we are growing in the knowledge of Christ because Christ is being reflected in us to us by the Holy Spirit. So we are growing in that. In that knowledge of Christ as we grow, that's the transformation that is happening. It's not saying that we are necessarily getting better at uh, how we handle our finances and things like that. That's not what is being said. Yeah, I, I think it's a spiritual transformation that is happening in the context of us seeing Christ more and more and better and better for who he is. It's not saying that we necessarily get better. And, and that's where the idea of liberty comes from in the text because yeah. you see, and by the way, the law is called, the in the in the King James here, it's called the ministration of death. All right? Now that sounds like a an awesome wrestling tag team, doesn't it? The ministration of death, Okay. This is the law. And the scripture in this very passage gives us that very, very uh, Shakespearean uh, quote. Listen. The letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. You heard of the letter versus the spirit of the law? Well, ding, ding, ding. This is where you get that. You see that the law, even though it brought death, still had the glory of God on it because the law is good and holy and and just. Uh, And Moses had this fading glory on him. And the scriptures talks about how it was a glory which was to be done away. And and it says, How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. So you've got this this picture of even even the law of God was glorious. Imagine now the liberty and the freedom that Christ brings, having this new as the scripture says here, it says Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. He says, and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, as the children of Israel could not steadfastly look at the end of that which is abolished. He said, but their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away until the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Verse 16, nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. This speaks of the power of the Lord to grant repentance and to turn hearts from dead works to the living God. And then we have in, in another one of those catchphrase verses you hear quoted all the time out of its context. Verse 17, Now the Lord is that Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. No more veils. No more fading glory. Instead, the Scripture says, but we all with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Which means if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. We're no longer dealing with types and shadows, but the fulfillment that is all in the finished work of Christ. No more veils, no more no more promises of something to come, but instead the unmitigated glory of God in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Glory, 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 glory,
the righteousness of God, the glory of God, used by the message of God, that is manifested apart from the law, though the law and prophets bear witness to it. If you go to chapter 4, therefore now we do not lose heart. We have this ministry by the work of God, and we renounce underhanded ways, twisting scripture, and I quoted in my sermon this morning, chapter 4, going into verse 2, all the way to verse 6, where we, what, proclaim boldly before you the gospel. The gospel. And if our gospel is veiled, if people are still looking here, they're still seeing the glory of God, but this expression of glory, like he was talking about Psalm 50, judgment, here's another point. From this part of glory, now, to this part of glory, this is Jesus. This is the new covenant. This is God who was saying, what are you saying, Simon? Don't touch it. If an animal touches this, then you die. They cower down. Moses came down. The glory of God reflected. I'll cover your face. We can't. Moses didn't want to cover his face. The people couldn't stand to look at it. They were scared of it. They hated it. Perfect love cast out all fear. The love of God manifested and displayed. The righteousness of God displayed the cross. The finished work of Jesus, the new covenant. God said, Let my son of darkness and shone on our people for light and knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So then, then we see the other context that goes along in Hebrews. It's amazing it's the same context. Suffering. That we have this finished in the dark, dark, bloody, but we also have to love God and unto us. And we do not lose heart. Though we are what? Afflicted, we are not destroyed. We we cast down, etc. All these things, but we do what? We keep our eyes on that which is eternal. For the things that are temporal passing away, and this light momentary affliction, Paul, so crazy, what do you call it? Light is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond our comparison. That's it. That is that glory right there. So, this is the glory of God manifested the law that dies, kills, and judges. But it's still there. It's still glorious in this. This is the glory of God in Christ and the And so that, and that's real obvious. Like when you just read, when we read the text, all of a sudden the, the essence of the meaning of the text just comes alive. Then. It's amazing when we get out of just a couple of verses or whatever, just mm-hmm. go the broad. The more sound spirit, bites, it's yeah. just like It's just like, wow, that makes so much better sense. And that is it, just so funny to me. Funny as in awe. We said that in Georgia. It's not hilarious. <laughs> but, uh, that every time we see people fight against the gospel, because let's go ahead and say that. What we're teaching today is not a doctrinal position on specifically sanctification. We're teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of sovereign grace. And people who refute this is saying that what we say is the gospel is wrong. We can't both be wrong. So they're refusing the gospel of grace. Well, it's not the gospel of not grace. It's the bad news of God's judgment. 